Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Joshua Pomare, or J.P. Pomare, as he's otherwise known, is a Melbourne-based New Zealand author who hit the literary scene in 2018 with a best-selling, award-winning debut in his psychological thriller, Call Me Evie. His success with this book was followed up with In the Clearing in 2019 and then Tell Me Lies in 2020. This year, Joshua is back with another edge-of-your-seat, spine-chilling thriller that will forever leave you nervous about renting a stay in someone else's home. The Last Guests, published by Hachette, is a compelling, tightly woven and suspenseful read I simply could not put down. And I'm super delighted to have the chance to speak with this incredible talent today. Welcome to the podcast, Joshua. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for that very generous introduction. Oh, it's my pleasure. My goodness, you have had an incredible run of success since Call Me Evie was published. Four books in four years, TV and film adaptations in production or in the pipeline. When you began writing novels, did you imagine or hope that this was what lay in store for you? Yeah, I think everyone, I, I, I want to say, yeah, it's not in response to that question, by the way. Um, that's me buying time to think. I mean, I was ambitious, but also I think because I'd spoken to a lot of writers and because I think I'm mostly um, grounded in reality in terms of my expectations, but sometimes you get ahead of yourself and sometimes you get you know, really excited with breakthroughs and moments. But I, but no, I, di- I didn't really think it would happen so quickly and, and not necessarily so well. But of course, you know, it's always, uh, what do they say in like business speak, managing expectations. That's what everyone sort of does around me. They do a really good job of making sure my expectations align with the, the kind of potential. And so I think, I think with every book, I've got a ceiling and a floor and um, and and sales wise and reception, it, everything sort of seems to, you know, fit somewhere in there. I really hate my books sometimes, and that's usually right before they come out and for the first few weeks, and then I sort of forget about them and start writing something else, and the cycle, you know, <laughs> renews. But yeah, no, I think it, I think it's important for all writers to have some level of ambition for their work and some expectation that you know people will read and take something from it. Otherwise, it's pretty pointless sharing it you can write for yourself um, if, if you have no ambition to get it in the hands of readers and to sort of you know affect them in, in some some way yeah so true I read somewhere Joshua that you're not entirely sure that you're a crime writer or that it was never your intention to write crime novels do you still feel this way even though you were nominated for a Ned Kelly award um yeah no I I mean it's just this one of those things where um I think lots of crime writers, this is their compromise. Um, and the best crime writers are the ones that always wanted to be crime writers, I think, and have always read crime, write, crime writing. But when I say the best, I mean the most, um, uh, both the most prolific, but also the most popular tend to be those who read a lot of crime and went out with the intention of selling lots of crime novels. Um, and that was never really my intention. It probably is now, to be honest. I mean, I, I write books and I think I hope this sells well. Um, and I hope it's received well. And I know that what I'm working on will be on the crime shelf. Whereas that that definitely wasn't the case with Call Me Evie. And, and, and 
not so much with um, in the clearing either, but by about my third novel, um, the industry beats you into the shape it, it sort of wants you to be in. And, and that yeah. tends to be when you're writing not only towards your strength, but towards the commercial potential of, of your strengths as well. So, so your editors will recognise that you write suspense well, so they'll edit you in a way where you're going to attract suspense readers or whatever. So, you know, um, like out of... Yeah, I mean, there's so many forces that push you when you are um, when you have deadlines and publishing contracts, and this and so much of it is outside of your control. But those the, the draft I sent to my agent for Call Me Evie, the very first draft was, I would say, literary, um, and that was my ambition back then. Yeah, so in a very short version of that answer, I think I. And I say this as a joke, but also kind of true. I think I sort of sold out a little bit in that I bent to the will of my agent and publisher, and I'm glad I did um, as well, I should say, because as I said, it's my, I think it's my strength and I think I'm writing to my strengths and I think I'm not cut to write the books that I so admired and wanted to write initially, and that's literary fiction, or maybe one day I'll try my hand at it again. But um, for the time being, I absolutely love a great crime novel as well so that's sort of yeah that's where i am fantastic in the crime aisle and happy to be there yes yeah Yeah. (laughs) okay so there was so much to love and admire about the last guests and indeed so much to unpack in relation to it but i wondered if perhaps we could start with how you came up with the central premise for this novel yeah sure so I, i talk about this a lot actually the really moment where it clicked for me was um the idea, not 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 writing it, but the moment I I had this kind of flash of what the story could be, uh, we were Airbnb in our little apartment, which we no longer own. But we had an apartment very close to the MCG and the botanical gardens and the museums and um, art gallery and stuff. And in Melbourne, when I say museums and art galleries, I, I mean NGB. So basically, a, a real touristy hub, really close to CBD, and we. We'd go away, I'm a Kiwi, so we'd go back to New Zealand quite a bit. And we we just we got into this habit, which was great, really great fun too. Um, before we had a baby, we would just open up the listing for our place. And what would happen is if we got a booking, and it was good, really good money, like, and we'd get a booking and then we'd go, cool, now, now where are we going to go? And we'd just go away somewhere. And it was quite fun. And we had lots of interaction with the people who were hosting and that sort of thing. But the very first time we did it, uh, we were really nervous and we did what everyone does and um, we just viewed all the kind of volumes of information that were available to us online about the guests, you know, what people put out there. So we just checked out their LinkedIn and Instagram and Twitter and stuff and Facebook. And, and that was partly due diligence. You have this kind of curiosity about who you're letting into your home. And so we did that and we decided, oh, yeah, that'll you know, from memory, and I think I've just built this profile in my head, but from memory, it was a couple from Adelaide or outside of Victoria coming to Victoria for a wedding. It was just an older couple and, yeah, they seemed nice enough. And so what you also do early on is you want to get five-star reviews so more people book in the future and that sort of thing. So we played the game and that we would leave out nice bottles of wine and milk and, and snacks and things, and we were really generous about it. So we, that first guest, I think we probably got like a $25 bottle of wine or something. We knew they were going to a wedding, so we left it out for them in a note and stuff. And we came home and we're nervous to see what the state of the apartment was like, but we discovered that that 
bottle of wine was still in the fridge, but there was about a glass of wine missing. And the idea came when I asked my wife, can we drink this? Can we finish this wine? Because in my head, the logical part of me is thinking, well, it's probably about a 1%, I'd say less than 1% chance these kind of sophisticated older couple would swing straight from the bottle. It was, you know, precisely... (laughs) One glass of wine was missing. This was pre-COVID, so we weren't thinking, oh, we'll catch something. And, and so, so we, uh, we didn't drink it, but I just remember thinking, well, why not? What's the worst that could happen? And, you know, from there, I thought, wow, you know, if I'm being insane, the worst that could happen is they could have put something in the wine. You know, they, they didn't like the experience. So they put something in the wine, hoping we'd drink it. I'm like, no, but. That's so astronomically unlikely. And I go, and even so, that's not the worst thing they could have done. You know, they could have put booby traps through the house or, or cut, cut the keys. You know, they could have got a copy of the key and they could be coming back later. They could have installed cameras in the house. And then I thought, but why would they want to do that? Or maybe they're voyeurs. And so it sort of was born out of that one question. You know, do, do you think we can drink this wine? And um, that gave rise to so many other questions and started to do research and realised this happens. This has happened a lot. Uh, voyeurs have installed cameras and Airbnbs. So that's sort of where that initial idea came from. So terrifying. As someone who, like you, has been on the Airbnb bandwagon, I can't say this isn't something that has crossed my mind. Not this exact scenario, I must say, but you know, I've certainly thought of squatters and meth labs and you know, damage and things like that. It's such a contemporary and compelling issue, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where the danger of technologies, I don't think anyone's naive to that, you know, what, what the potential risks and, and how we can sort of mitigate those risks with technology. But as surveillance equipment gets smaller and cheaper, you know, and this is with everything, of course, you know, as computers get smaller and cheaper, more people have access to the sort of technology that can conduct fraud or whatever, you know. So, yeah. so with everything, progress and technological advancement obviously brings about greater potential for risks as well. And cameras are so cheap and so tiny. You know, if you look at the quality of uh, a recording you can make on your iPhone and do it right now, you know, while you're listening to this podcast, hold up your iPhone, have a look at the size of that lens in there. Mm. Now that's, you know, big. That lens is big for what Mm. you can get. And that's recording, you know, what would, would have cost tens of thousands of dollars 20 years ago. So yeah. full HD, basically the nib of a pen, and you can disguise it behind glass, you can disguise it in screw heads and light fittings and, and mm. alarm clocks and all sorts of things. So, and as that gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and this market has always existed, you know, but there's always been boys since you know, the dawn of time, everyone's being curious about what their neighbours are getting up to. But now the risks are much lower because you're much less likely to be discovered. And not only that, you can view other people's material, you know. So you don't even need to be in the same country as someone to be a voyeur of, um, you know, their neighbours or whatever. So there's risk there. It's a very contemporary issue. And it's, it's frankly pretty terrifying. But... You could have been viewed and you'd never know. So in the same breath, as I say, it's terrifying. It's also largely a victimless crime in the sense that the victims don't even know. Now, we've talked a lot around um, the plot of this book, but for those who haven't had the chance to read The Last Guests as I have, could you tell me more about it? Yeah, sure. So the central premise is 
pretty high concept. It's classic. It's Airbnbs or the equivalent for legal reasons. It's called We Stay in the book. Short stay holiday rentals are um, being booked by people who want to install cameras in them and then they'll record, well, they'll stream that to voyeurs online. But at the heart of the story, it's really about it. Uh, a relationship. It's about the extent that uh, we would go to to live with the things we've done, basically. So how we cope with traumas and, and guilt and how, you know, if we, if we get what we want and we sacrifice part of ourselves and we sacrifice our innocence to get what we want and to be the person we are, then how do we reconcile that and how do we deal with that and so it's also about secrets and the power that secrets have over us and that sort of paranoia about them um because uh, you know this is a, a couple who are married both want different things and when they get what they want they're much more miserable and you know they, they actually lose a lot of what it was they loved about each other so it's about that as well the sort of staying power and the power of secrets yeah, it's absolutely fascinating read, as I said in my introduction. Now, it's set in New Zealand between Auckland and Lake Tarawera. I hope I've said that correctly. And as I said earlier, you were born in New Zealand. Is this particular place somewhere that's that you're familiar with? And how did you choose this setting? Yeah, I, I am actually. It's um, Lake Tarawera is uh, very close to my hometown, Aroturua, which is middle of the North Island. And I, I spent a lot of time out there. I've got friends in the lake general lakes area out that, that side. So there's Lake Okaraka and there's the Blue Lake, Lake Rotuiti. These are all places that are much the same, but also have the sort of slight variations in terms of locals, in terms of the, what percentage of the population are holidaymakers and what percent are, you know, full-timers. Lake Tarawit is huge and it is literally, you know, combustible in the sense that it's, uh, it's on um, a volcano that was the biggest... I think it might be the biggest eruption on record in New Zealand, um, the Tarawera eruption, because it was a mountain, it was a volcano, and mm-hmm. it, the crater blew up, and that's what created this lake. It's just beautiful. It's 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 one of those spots that tourists miss. It's it's out of the way. It's off State Highway One, which is you know the 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 road that passes through you know pretty much every town in New Zealand. Um, so it's so it's out of the way. It gets missed by tourists. It's the locals absolutely love it. It's a bit of a secret. But there's potential for, you know, tension there as well because of that. And Auckland's obviously, you know, the reason I, I was attracted to Auckland is because there's a absolute crisis with housing and affordability. It's one of the world's most livable cities, but it's horrible if you're not that close to the city and you need to get in. Like traffic is, I don't think, you know, I've ever lived or, or visited a city outside of maybe Delhi and India and, and some cities in, in Southeast Asia. But in terms of, you know, the West Mall, that, that Auckland can be so, such a frustrating place to live. But I love the city. Um, and if you're not quite in the band of wealth, quiet to be comfortable there, then it's just full-time stress. You know, people who live there are really, you know, they've got big mortgages, They've got long, hard commute. So it's a lot of stress. I thought if you are in that band where you love the city, you kind of want to live there, your jobs are there, but you can't really afford it. That just adds another 
level to it in terms of what I can put my characters through. And that's what sort of drives often dubious decisions. You know, decision-making is that desperation. And I wanted to say something about class a little bit as well. I think yeah. gentrification in Auckland has been pretty rapid, same with lots of places, but what it means for West Auckland and South South Auckland, what it means for those communities that are that have lived there for years, that are largely, particularly in South Auckland, that are largely, well, there's lots of uh, people from Pacific Islands in, in South Auckland, lots of Maori um, people as well. It's inevitable that these places, the gentrification will drive them out. And so I sort of wanted to talk about that how, that, how the city is changing. And in the end, you know, my characters are deciding if it's time to get out. Yes, indeed. We already talked a little bit about voyeurism and you've touched on this as well, but how seemingly easy it is for us to leave a digital footprint of our movement. You said that you don't think a lot of people can be, you know, naive to the fact that this is what happens. But I mean, just in preparing for this interview, for example, I did some cursory searches of your social media accounts, articles you've written, interviews you've given, and no doubt people have and can do the same about me, know where I live, how many children I have, where I went to school and university. Do you think this is something people don't really give much thought about anymore or something we should be concerned about? I mean, I find it particularly challenging because I feel obligation as as a requirement of being a, an author who isn't Sally Rooney. I have to have some level of presence online. I have to make myself available to strangers to sort of interact with me, basically. And what that means is the more you give of yourself, the happier your publicist is in particular, but the happier um, the readers are and the more they can engage with you. And, and I see it work. And that's, that's, that's sort of the problem here. That's a different form of interaction than uh, tech or phone addiction or social media addiction, which is, I would say more people are addicted to social media than anything. I reckon, you know, more people are addicted to their phones than anything else. Um, and that might be me speaking from a place of privilege where everyone has a smartphone. So maybe I'm speaking particularly about the wealthiest countries where everyone's got phones and full-time internet access and so on and so forth. But it's insidious and it's growing and it's growing and it's growing. And we don't have any natural defences to the level of manipulation and the level of, you know, we're talking about people who have studied for 10 years behavioural economics and, and they are paid a lot of money to make us more addicted to this mm. if it was a harmful substance and it is harmful but if it was something that was more obviously harmful people would be outraged that psychologists have been paid so much to mm. make us more addicted so uh, the the thing i find most fascinating about the whole thing is and this is my personal experience because i wasn't on anything no twitter no facebook no instagram and then i published a book and and you know, I, th I think I was, I had a Twitter account, but I didn't use it. And I published a book and then, well, I started a podcast section. There's a requirement, certainly on Twitter and stuff, to promote the authors who come on. But you're not, you're giving up less of yourself if you're using Twitter as a promotional tool. But as soon as you use Instagram or Facebook, which are much more visual mediums, then you're giving up information about yourself, pictures and things. And I've found I've become addicted and I have to, you know, I broke my phone in New Zealand. I ran over it with a luge cart, which is a whole other story. And <laughs> I decided not to replace it for a long time, for probably six or eight weeks. And this was right up until just after my book came out. And obviously my publicist is pulling her hair out. My wife is pulling her hair out and everyone else. Um, but I just saw it as a good hard reset, you know, a good hard stop on my addiction to, to these things. 
So is there a problem with them? In my view, yeah, because one, no one reads the terms and conditions, but two, as I said, there's no natural defense to this. You're getting marketed to, your your thinking is being changed. You are believing the most fantastical things possibly because of how compelling it is on, on social media. Your views and standards of beauty are changing. Your expectations, your self-esteem is dropping. Yeah. You're being exposed to vetted and doctored and photoshopped images and, and you a reality of, of other people's lives that, that simply doesn't match their actual existence so all of this is so 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 toxic but no one thinks too much about the privacy concerns as well so the fact that you're giving so much to companies that only interest is to take your money and sell you things you probably don't need but not only that there's privacy concerns in terms of stalkers and stalking and you're putting your kids images online and I, I've done this before as well I don't have consent for my daughter to put her pictures online where they'll be forever and anyone can use. And I often think about a conversation I'll have with her one day when she's 16 or 18 or 21 or 25 or 30 or whatever. And um, strangers have all these images and all this private data and information about her. And at no point in time had I stopped to get her consent. So there's so much here that's ugly. And in this book, I wanted to point to the more tangible kind of <laughs> threats and that's mm. if you say a fitness app and you go for yeah. a run every time you go for a run it starts from your house and the default setting on these apps is public availability in terms of your data and information so everyone can search your name find you on this app and see where you start your run and where you finish your run and it doesn't take a brain decision to determine that's likely where you live they also know what time do you run if you run at night if you're running at night at a park your diet will be on there, the cafes you go to because you post your coffee in the morning, the people you hang out with, you know. So this, just in terms of the actual threat of stalking and the tangible threat of being stalked or um, assaulted or whatever, mm -hmm. it's very, very real. It's not something you can click your fingers and make it go, go away as well because you don't know who's been watching this whole time. Yeah, absolutely terrifying on so many levels, I have to say. Okay, so... We talked a little bit about Lena and her husband, Kane, a, a bit before. They're an interesting couple, to say the least. They love each other for sure. Each harbours some very deep secrets, as well as nursing deep psychological trauma. So I wanted to know, Joshua, how did you get inside their heads? Yeah, good question. I mean, I, I, they get in my head as much as I get in theirs, I should say. So I, I, I sort of, less so than some authors, but I, um, I method write in that I, you know, live like my characters accidentally. It's not planned. It's not a writing strategy, so to speak. But certainly with uh, Kane, you know, I got really, really fit. Really, really fit. Um, not obviously not SAS fit, but I got as fit as I've ever been. I shaved my head, and which I did for Evie as well. I started gambling because he's he's addicted to gambling, and um, wanted to sort of understand how that world worked. But then I sort of outside of research was like oh well, i'm doing it and, and in this way i sort of become these characters while i'm writing them and with lena you know so kane was also speaking with former sas members mm. and reading and understanding uh i think most importantly for me the research about him was understanding the psychological effect of killing someone and the way that our soldiers are primed to be desensitized to that and view that the act of killing is something that's morally permissible and that sort of thing. But with Lena, I was speaking a lot with a paramedic because she's a paramedic and understanding 
what that trauma does to people and the desperation. And, you know, Lena in the book is pretty keen to have children. And part of that's because the, all of a sudden her life's different and she can escape this world, but she, she doesn't confront that. And I don't even know if the reader really uh, reckons with that either, you know, but it's, but that's part, part of what makes her ca- character up is why she wants to have a kid. And part of that is to escape this sort of this life, because if you are a paramedic in a city, you're going to see horribly traumatic things yeah. every, every single day. Uh, not to mention the pressure and stress, and there's a, there's a great deal of addiction with medical professionals and anaesthetists and paramedics, largely because they have access to, um, you know, fentanyl and stuff like that, but also largely because of, you know, the level of exposure to reasonably traumatic things as well. Yeah, so, so, so sort of getting in the head was, yeah, getting in the head, just sometimes I'll write journal entries and things like that. I'll, uh, I'll try to go where they would go and, and do what they would do, and then... I often form habits they have and that sort of thing as well. And then I go to write the next book and I have a new kind of obsession being new characters. And then that, that that's, you know, I'm, I'm pulled in that direction. They were a lot of fun to write. I'll say that as well. Cause they're kind of, you know, I find messed up people pretty fun to kind of interrogate, you know, and poke at and, and see how they react in certain situations. You wrote about some of your own experiences with violence and their lasting psychological impacts. I wondered if that helped you when it came to writing Lena and Kane and the things that they went through. Yeah, I, I mean, I assume you're talking about we had a home invasion. Um, That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, uh, long story short, we had someone came to a, a house with a knife and mm. in the middle of the day and stole our car and came into our house. Um, and this came while I was editing the book. This happened. Yeah, I, I guess it sort of contextualised violence for me or, or at least the threat of violence um and what we where we go in those moments because you know i surprised myself in my reaction i don't really ever get angry and and it was an instant level of rage when i discovered someone was in my house and i ran yeah. to confront this person daytime regular jp wouldn't think like that you know but it just became it was just sort of this instinctive thing but then of course after that as well in, in the aftermath yeah. which is so much of this book is, is about the aftermath um, and the way a place changes when something quite scary or horrible happens to you there instantly the fear module has registered uh the the place possibly that you live in our case as yeah. a you know enormously threatening environment and and you can't you can't combat that with logic. The only way to get over it is is, uh, is exposure therapy, basically, which is a fancy uh, name for simply confronting that that which yeah. you're afraid of, and and that can backfire too if, if if you're immersed in that fear. If the stimulus is too great, that makes the fear worse. So it was in saying that what I mean is we couldn't you know recreate that scene and expect to feel better about it. But it was just a slow thing of being comfortable in the house again and going into rooms together and turn the lights on and yeah and not trying to outthink it but also just finding some sort of sense of peace with it and so that was all of that really informed my approach in the certainly in the later editing stages and trying to make that experience authentic one of the home invasion but two of the aftermath there were certainly some major red herrings in this book with a major plot twist uh, that left me speechless at the end so I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about your process I mean I give a different answer to this every time because as I'm writing I realize it's slightly different each book and but I think really um, I don't have a 
I don't always have the twist on first, second, third drafts, but I look at the assumptions that a reader's making because a twist is simply you um, subverting, you know, something the reader believes. And the more fundamental that belief uh, that you subvert, the bigger the twists. I, I mean, I say, like, the biggest twists are the ones that people aren't looking for, you know. Yeah. Um, and that could be where you place it. If there's a huge twist, you know, 10 pages in and it works, that's what could make that twist great is the fact that people aren't expecting a twist, you know. So so there's a, when I'm writing um, surprises and, and little twists and big twists throughout my work, I'm really just trying to put myself in the reader's shoes and, and think, what do they fundamentally believe here and what can I subvert? Yeah. But what also tends to happen is between edits when I'm walking or sitting or, and I'm thinking deeply I'm trying to actively deepen my imagining of the story. So I'm making myself imagine a scene and I'm going, cool, what's in the corner? Which character's there? What's the weather doing? What can they smell? What can they taste? So I'm, at, so I'm at really trying to, you know, immerse myself in the scene. And, and then when that, when I'm doing these kind of exercises, I'm just thinking really deeply about a scene and not thinking about a twist. Sometimes something just unlocks, you know. It could, it's just got nothing to do with plot or anything like that. But sometimes I just think, what if this is this person? Or, yeah. And, and the other thing I'd say about with this twist in this book, it was inevitable um, how this how the story kind of concluded for me. Anyway, you know, yeah. other people disagree. But when I was writing this, this was this was always sort of the ending. Right, mm. so that that wasn't me planning a twist. This was always how it ended. But then I just thought, what? Can, how can I structure this in a way that it will still be surprising? You know, what can I kind of keep? What scenes can I refine so they end before you find something out? So, so basically, it's just an act of sleight of hand at that stage. Um, you know, everything's there the whole way through, but I'm just choosing which details to withhold to heighten that twist. But in saying that, like I said, it wasn't a twist you know, 10 drafts ago, um, mm. something that was sort of teased down the editing process. As we said before we started recording, you and I have something in common in that we're both podcasters. Um, I've listened to your wonderful podcast called On Writing. So I wanted to ask you, why did you start the podcast and did it help with your writing, do you think? Well, the second part of that question is, yeah, very easy in that it helps a lot. And that's because I'm doing what you're doing now and that's um, speaking with other writers and in earnest as well, I should say. I started that podcast because, well, at the time, I mean, we're going back to, I think it's 2016, maybe, 2015, 2016. Mm. Um, at the time, there wasn't, there's, there was like one other writing podcast, right? So, and they weren't asking the questions that I was that interested in. Although that writing podcast was probably 10 times more popular than my one, I started because... One, I was naive to, you know, how hard it would be. Um, but two, I thought, well, there's, I don't think there's a market for this or I could make money. I just thought this could be an avenue for me to ask questions that I actually want and that I'm interested in. And I was listening to a, a few, one or two American ones. There's nothing I found particularly exciting about them. And they weren't Australian guests anyway, you know. And, and so, the, so when they're talking about New York publishing, it's, slightly different to 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 australian so yeah that's why i started and, and i didn't look back once you know when i was doing it i loved it and i should say it's been a year since i did an episode and i can't say for sure if i'll do another one to be honest i don't miss it so much now but that space has been filled if i want to you know I, I i know which podcasts i i like now and i can go to those to hear interviews and stuff like that and if i really want to speak to an author 
it's slightly easier now to, <laughs> to approach them. They might actually read my email because I feel like I'm in the club. Maybe I'm not, but you know, it's 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 slightly more accessible. You bump into people you like and green rooms and stuff like that at writers' festivals or what or you've got a friend in common or you know, you have the same agent or whatever. So so I do meet more writers now. And that was the other thing about it was I was meeting, you know, I was interviewing like Trent Dalton and Christian White and Sophie Laguna and Joyce Carol Oates and all these writers are so um, admiring of. And there's no way in how that would have happened otherwise. Um, yeah. So I was already kind of in the club before, before I was in the club, which made it much more realistic as well because you're getting, you know, you're getting all this feedback and you're finding, as you said earlier, you're finding that everyone's got a different approach and everyone's got a different story and, and there's no, you know, there's no right way to do it. That was the other thing as well. Talking about being in the club, I just feel like, particularly with Australian authors, that, I mean, I started virtually cold calling people and asking them if they would be on the podcast. And I'm talking from a place of, you know, not having anything published and not really being known by anyone. But I just think it's a testament to how wonderful the Australian writing community is in that most people will answer an email from you and will be happy to speak to you on your podcast, even if they've never heard of you before. Don't know anything about your podcast. I think it really does say a lot about how wonderful this community really is. Yeah, I mean, cynically, I'd say it also says a lot about well, two things: publicity in Australia as well, but also yeah. the level of engagement with the writing community from non-writers as well. So, like yeah. people listen to, I know friends and things who have listened to writing podcasts who aren't writers as well. Mm. So. Um, you know, maybe that happens all around the world, but I think that particularly in Australia, you know, writers' festivals are, you know, really popular with just readers. I think that's that's also why it's quite important, I think, to engage um, in this way as well. So after four books, are there things you know about yourself or have learned about your writing that you didn't know before you were published? Yeah, you know, there are. I mean, I, I sometimes I look back at early infuse and things and cringe and I'm sort of just this you know, wide-eyed, you know, I talk about how much it, it prepared me to be a writer having a podcast, but you still, you know, this first one or two books, you, you very much are still, you feel like a tourist. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, I, and, I, and, you know, I think maybe I was still childish and I was in my late twenties um, when I got my first publishing contract. I think every year I change a lot, but I think something changes, you know, there's a big kind of tectonic shift when you hit 30, I think. And so I think I'm a really different person now than I was. Mm. And whether or not that's anything to do with publishing books or being in this community, I can't say for sure. But I'd say it has a lot to do with it as um, being, you know, as, as small as my audience may be, being in the public eye and having speaking gigs and writers' festivals and, and meeting people who are, you know, again, as small as this community is meeting people who are fans you know mm. um that what that does is you know depending on your personality and um you know your sort of self-concept i suppose but if it's not important for you that you've got fans when you do meet people who love your work it's still you know immensely um gratifying and you may not be writing for that that may not be the the 
the destination, so to speak, but mm. it's still a pretty special thing, I think. So, and, and that's why all writers say reach out if you love the book, get in touch, send them an email or whatever, contact them on Instagram. That's changed me a lot as well. In terms of my writing and, and my approach, I think I'm more professional now. I think what I want to do has changed. I wanted to write something different every single time, and I still do. But the commercial realities in the industry will often derail those plans a little bit. You know, you really can't be too experimental if you've got six months to write a novel. In saying that, I try to now I'm, I'm negotiating. <laughs> it's my decision, but I'm chatting with my agent about possibly taking t- more time between books, possibly doing side projects as well, looking at eventually. This is uh, not, you know hot off the press really but um you know i've been speaking with a screenwriter and talking about that as a fun side project have a year off and do that which is a real privilege i should say as well like you know i, th- I think when you're writing crime fiction and your book's popular enough you 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 have that as an option um, there's lots that's changed and and i think i haven't really i don't know i, I feel like i haven't fully cemented myself as a as a crime writer, right in my little niche, but that's certainly the expectation of me. And and when you're writing towards that, it's a different kind of writing than pure, you know, a pure creative, totally authentic um, thing. You know, you, you do think about the audience and you do think about your publisher and that sort of thing. So in that respect, it's changed as well. If you had a tip or two to offer an aspiring writer, what would you say? I would say my general advice, I, I try not to be too general cliche, but Everyone, you, you know, the advice I'd give to someone with their, on their tenth draft of a, of a crime manuscript, and the advice I'd give to someone writing poetry are, are two fundamentally different things. So uh, I try not to be too vague, but um, I'd say one: engage the community as much as you can. We're all pretty introverted, you know, so I would accept if you didn't want to go join a writers group or whatever. But um, if you go to readings the bookshop but not the bookshop you know if you go to poetry readings if you're a poet or short story readings or whatever if you turn up at other people's book launches and do that sort of thing um, that's fine but I think writers groups and if you can afford it workshops and things like that if you can't apply for grants or whatever you know if you can access some education and and that that's those are the two most important things I think is engaging the community and and um, growing your craft and developing your craft and when I say that you know there are things that do both at the same time that's writers groups I think if you can join a writers group you're going to be much more objective about your work because you are reading other people's work who also think it's the next monkey group so you can read theirs and go hey they think that and it's not so maybe I'm wrong about how good my stuff is and then you become more objective about your work and learn to edit and stuff like that so um, but not only that, like I said, when your book does get published, people turn up to your launch, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll have friends who might get published and they can put you in touch with the agent and stuff like that. So just there's, there's no downside really to meeting other writers and engaging the community. Um, and the other thing I'd say is, um, and this sucks to hear, uh, but, you know, it's you, you've got to hear it. And if you don't like it, you, you, maybe you should take up fishing something else because you won't probably make it as a writer but just write every every day and when I say that people think oh keep, that means keep a journal or that means work on a novel every day it, it really doesn't just even if you're reading a book and you like it just write out the scene 
just write the same thing word for word if you want. And it's the same with reading. Read what you want, but make sure you do it. And when I say read what you want, don't force yourself to read Ulysses because um, you're going to hate it and then you, you're going to read less. And it's the yeah. same with writing. Don't think you have to write a certain way. So just write, open a book and read a scene and go, okay, how would I write the scene? And then write it out. What? It's as simple as that. Um, if you want to read Ulysses, fill your boots. And if you want to write some insanely dense or complex literary scene, do that as well. My point is write and read precisely what you want, but make sure you're doing it. I love that advice. Thank you so very much. Joshua, I thoroughly enjoyed The Last Guests. It was a fascinating and compelling insight into human behaviours. Congratulations once again, and thank you for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. Like I said earlier, it's my birthday tomorrow. So if you want to give me a birthday present, listeners, go to the library and get my book out or buy it. Even better. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.